You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be together uh, with you all as we turn to God's Word this morning. Um, If you're new, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my joy just to open up the scripture with you today and, and walk through a passage of scripture in Acts 14. I, d- I do want to make a little bit of a comment as we're walking through Acts that I don't think all of the messages in Acts have been um, sort of parallel. They, they haven't all, uh, well, that may not be the right word, but they have not all functioned in the same way. That's what I meant to say. Some of the messages have drawn very specific conclusions uh, that have Uh, had a degree, a high degree at points of personal application to each of us in our private lives throughout the week. Um, But other messages that we've gone through have been more culture-shaping for our church as we understand mission. When we looked at Acts 13 and talked about them sending out Paul and Barnabas on a church plant, uh, made a lot of connections to our sending a team of people to Anna. Obviously, differences between going and reaching people that have never heard the gospel uh, in the ancient world. There are differences um, but there are, there's a common similarity that God sends people and that God commissions them through local churches. So that, that is certainly a, an abiding similarity. So that was more of a culture-shaping message, perhaps. And I think today is, the, is, is similar because I want to talk about the dividing and uniting gospel. So we're going to walk through uh, Acts 14, and we're going to see it. It sort of reads, it's sort of like watching a missionary documentary. We're just sort of tracking with Paul and Barnabas and their experiences. But there are some things, uh, I believe, for us to learn in the process that apply to the mission and how we understand the gospel functioning in the church and how evangelism, the message of the gospel, uh, works in culture as well. So we're going to be talking about that. So I want to start by just uh, reorienting everybody and pulling our very basic map. I feel like I apologize for it every time, but man, it, it works, you know, no apologies. So this is the area we're looking at. Uh, and so it has some modern areas. You can see Italy up here. This would be Greece over here. Uh, and so you can see Turkey, Turkey up here. You can see, uh, the part of the world that we're in. So if we could go to the one that shows Paul's journey, they started in Antioch here, if you remember. They, they went over to Cyprus, went to Salamis, uh, went to Paphos there, number two, Paphos. And there is where they, the proconsul, the guy who ruled the island under uh, delegated Roman authority, uh, he was converted. Amazing. Um, so this is the first time the gospel's going out ever. Uh, in these kinds of places uh, that that an apostle is going to deliver the gospel anyway, we should say. From there, they went up here to Perga and Pamphylia. uh, And from there, they went to Antioch. We mentioned there's a bunch of Antiochs. This is called Pisidian Antioch because it's in Pisidia. I just want to point out Phrygia right here because I'm going to mention that in the sermon today, though we're not in Phrygia. Uh, So they were here in Antioch, and this is where Paul goes and they invite him to speak in the, uh, in the synagogue. He preaches this amazing message uh, about going back to Abraham and showing all through the history of Israel that it all culminates in the person of Jesus. He's your Messiah that you're waiting on is what he says to the Jewish people. Uh, there's a big dust up there. And he says, uh, look, if you guys don't want to receive the gospel, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's kind of what he does. So today we're going to see they go from Antioch. They left there. And we're going to start in Iconium here. And then just to show you where we're going to go, then we're going to go to Lystra and Derby. So this is Iconium, 
this is uh, uh, like, like Lyconia, I'm sorry, Lyconia, we're going to talk about Lyconia today, and Lyconia is Lystra and Derby. So those are the places we're going to be on uh, the journey today. And in, for, in chapter 14, here's what we're going to see, that properly understood, the gospel divides people before it unites people. It divides people before it unites them. So this year, we've been looking at the unifying effects of the gospel, how the gospel unifies all types of people in the local church. But we must understand that the message of Jesus is polarizing. It is a polarizing message that has radically different effects on different hearers. So it divides believer from unbeliever before it unites believers in Jesus Christ. The gospel has this dividing effect where some receive it and some don't, and some who don't receive it bring opposition to those who do, which is kind of what we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to go section by section. Let's start in chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. They've, they've just left uh, city in Antioch, and now they are going to Iconium. And here's what we're going to see in Iconium, gospel division. So we're going to see gospel division, then we're going to read a section about gospel persecution, and then we're going to read a section about gospel fruit, uh, though there's fruit everywhere, but uh, significant fruit there. So gospel division is where we're starting. Listen to God's word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews uh, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they make this travel from Pisidian Antioch. It's about 100 miles over to Iconium, and they, they follow their usual practice. They show up at the synagogue. They're reaching the Gentiles, but they always start in the synagogue because there's a common ground there in terms of believing the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, so they start there. They go into the synagogue, and lo and behold, verse 1, many people, it says, a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. These were probably uh, God-fearing uh, Gentiles that hear it, they're in the synagogue, uh, they're God-fearers, or they're, um, uh, they're, uh, they're not Hebrew Jews, but they're Hellenistic Jews. So they, they hear the gospel, many respond favorably. But what happens after that is the, those who, the Jews who don't believe in Christ when they hear it, they begin to oppose Paul and Barnabas. They begin to, verse 2 says, poison the minds against the brothers. So these new converts, they're raising all kinds of questions. They're poisoning their minds. It's it's kind of a slander campaign. That's how slander works. You speak against someone and uh, something they believe, something they're excited about, but you discredit Paul and Barnabas. You discredit things you've heard about this new Christian movement. And so they, they poison their minds. In other words, they, they just they bring slander against both Paul and Barnabas and likely the new converts as well. So what happens when the gospel comes to Iconia, the effect is division. Verse 4, 
But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with Jews and some sided with the apostles. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. But not everybody receives it as good news. Some don't receive it as good news. And and we've got to be real about this. The gospel is an extreme message. It is an extreme message. And that's why throughout the New Testament, throughout the world today in so many places, people oppose it not casually, but with threats, sometimes with violence, um, with all kinds of opposition. Uh, it's, a, it's a danger. People hear the message of the gospel because of its rather exclusive claims. They hear it as a danger. They hear it as a, a, a message of bigotry and this sort of a thing. And so it, it, is, it is seen as a dangerous, harmful message. And you know why that is and why that is in this these texts in 14 that we're going to see, is because the gospel makes these radically exclusive claims. You can't just be neutral on the gospel. You don't just get to add the gospel to uh, your other gods or to your other beliefs and just sort of keep them all up there together. It's exclusive. It says that Jesus alone is God. You have to swallow that truth that God became a man in Jesus Christ, that the only way to be forgiven before God, or in their situation, many of the places they're going, not the synagogue, but many of the other places, the gods, the only way that you receive forgiveness is through the death of Jesus who dies for our sins. That's a unique and a radical message. And not only that Jesus died for our sins, but he came up out of the grave. You have to believe to be a Christian that this God-man, Jesus, was resurrected. And as we'll see going through Acts, that is a crazy idea, particularly to the Greeks, That is a crazy idea. So you have to believe these exclusive things. You have to subscribe to this reality. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you have to believe that Jesus alone is God. He alone is truth. And that means that all other gods are false. That means that all other pathways to God, to uh, eternal life, All other pathways end in destruction. And when people really understand that, the exclusive claims of Christianity, not everybody receives it as a big bear hug. Some receive it as a threat to their belief system, to to their very way of life, to the patterns, to their lifestyle. Some find it intellectually, uh, not, not credible, intellectually. Uh, So many oppose it for different reasons when it is accurately understood. When it is accurately understood, the gospel is polarizing. So the message goes out in in the city of Iconium, and it divides the city. There's an old saying that that is a perfect metaphor for what's happening here. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. When the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is declared, some hearts are melted. Some hearts are humbled. Some hearts are open to see the glory of God and his loving invitation to know him, to see the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us. And, and, and their hearts run to God, realizing this is what I was created for, for him. This is where forgiveness, this is new life, this is everything. But other people hear it, and that same sun that lands on clay doesn't melt it, but hardens it. Their hearts get brittle as they hear the message, and they they turn away from it. 
They don't want anything to do it. Do with it. The, the, the gospel message will convert some. This room is evidence of that. But it will harden others. You know, this is no surprise. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 10. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 10. Listen to what Jesus said. This is surprising. Most of us are like, wow, did he really say that? Yeah, he really said this. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, he's not saying I'm just, my purpose is to bring, you know, family disharmony. But he's saying people are going to take sides. People are going to orient their life around me in followership, discipleship, or they're going to reject me. And when that happens, there will become division, even in families. Some of you have division uh, in your family over Jesus Christ. Now, it's helpful to know that Jesus predicted that. And we're seeing that happen in Acts 14. Now, if there's division because you've been self-righteous, unkind, unforgiving, bitter, selfish, proud, that's a different kind of division that you have to own up for, own up to. But if the division is me and my house, my, me and my house we must follow the Lord, and the other is I, I want nothing to do with that sort of bigoted, narrow-minded uh, hate, uh, hate speech. The gospel is hate speech in some places today, then there will be division, he says, even in households. And there's division here in chapter 14. We're, we're sometimes surprised uh, when people respond with opposition to the best news imaginable. But this is common in the New Testament. It just happens everywhere. It started with Jesus, and Jesus says it's just going to continue to happen. And if it doesn't happen at all, we should ask questions, why not? We shouldn't be shocked. Um, Paul and Barnabas aren't shocked. They continue on, which I love, verse 3. It says, once the city's divided, there's this slander campaign. It says, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their, done by their hands. So there are miracles happening. Uh, they're preaching the gospel, but they're doing something else. They're staying for a long time because their lifestyle. Their love for the people is providing a credible witness. So there's, this, there's poisoning. Somebody's poisoning their minds, but Paul and Barnabas are walking out, loving others, serving others, praying for others. Uh, and that's why relationships are so key. You even see it there. There's relationships. The, there's a relational model in, in, this, in this city. But we also see the opposition increases to the point where it says, <clears throat> the people wanted to stone them, so they go to Lystra and Derby. In Iconium, the gospel divides. In Lystra, we're going to see not the threat of persecution, but outright uh, persecution. So let's read verses 8 through 20. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Lyconian, 
The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing this? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he, uh, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did not, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So they go to Lystra and Derby, and, and it starts with, or you go to Lystra first, it starts with a miracle. There's a guy who's never walked. He's disabled, and Paul sees him and speaks to him, stand up and walk, and the guy stands up and starts walking. This is like Acts 3, Peter and John going into the temple, the gate beautiful, very similar miracle, and uh, all of a sudden, the, the guy is completely healed, and the crowd's response is shocking. I mean, who would have seen this coming? The crowd starts shouting in Lyconian, so Paul and Barnabas can't understand what's being spoken. It's in Lyconian because they, they delay a response, don't they? So we assume they don't really understand what's being said. But they start saying, the gods have come to us. And they think Barnabas is Zeus, uh, likely because he's older. And they think that Paul is Hermes, his Zeus's son. He's the spokesman. Uh, so uh, that, that mapped on to the role of Hermes. And so everybody is celebrating them celebrating them. I mean, ready to offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. This is the greatest case of mistaken identity in the Bible, that they're called Zeus and Hermes. This is greater mistaken identity than, um, than anywhere, anywhere else that we can see in the Bible. And so uh, they, Paul and Barnabas can't understand the language, but when the priest comes out with the oxen and is ready to offer a sacrifice, that's when they uh, jump into action and say, wait a minute, that's, that's, uh, that's not who we are. Now, why did they want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas? I mean, we would think that's crazy. Worship them? We talk about celebrity pastors. That's another level right there. Why, why, why would they do that? Well, scholars point out there's a very good reason why they would have done that. Um, that the poet Ovid told the story and it happened in Phrygia, which is right next, I pointed that out on the map, it's right next to where they are. And many years ago in Phrygia, Zeus and Hermes came down to earth dressed as men. So they, they hid themselves as men, these gods, and uh, this is like undercover boss, but undercover gods. They come down to the people, and they show up at people's houses asking to be taken in, asking for hospitality. And everyone turns them away. Everyone turns the gods away. But they get to one family's house, Philemon and Baucis, and uh, this is a very poor couple. And they invite them in, and they feed Zeus and Hermes, just thinking they're regular people, and take care of them after a 1,000 people 
had turned them down and not let them in their house. And as soon as they take care of them and love them, their house, Philemon and Baucis' house, turns into an elaborate temple and is lifted up in the air and placed on top of the hill overlooking the area. And then a big flood comes and drowns all the thousand homes, kills everybody. And so with that myth in mind, if the gods have come again in human form, we don't want to miss it. We're going to kill some. This is a very poor area. Uh, Lystra is poor. It's not sophisticated. It's off the beaten path. It's sort of backwoods. Many of the people are illiterate in this area. Iconium was an area of agriculture and commerce. Lystra is poor. And so even to offer oxen would have been very valuable. So we're going to give our best to the gods because, you know, it doesn't go well for people that don't serve and welcome the gods. Well, whether... Whether Paul and Barnabas knew that story or not, uh, well, I don't know. But, but that likely was the kind of fear that we must treat the gods well in our midst. And they think they're gods because of the healing. So when they understand uh, what's going on, Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They run into the crowd saying, we're just men as well. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they come to them and they explain their purpose. Now, this is very interesting because they're declaring the gospel to them. They've done, they, in this process they do, they have healed, God has healed someone. And now they're saying, look, we want you to know the living God is the language they use. They don't, it's very different than preaching the gospel in the synagogue. In the synagogue, they started with Abraham. They traced all the history of Israel and came to Jesus. Here, they start with there is a God, because these people would have known nothing about that. Here they start with there is a living God who is the creator and made it all. Uh, Verse 17, they say, uh, he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So there's a God overall. Zeus, they believed, was the God of thunder and lightning. Uh, thunder and rain, I guess. Thunder, lightning, and rain, the whole package. But, but they're saying there's a God over all that, that that gives you crops and gives you food and does more than that in a very Ecclesiastes kind of a way. He says there's only one way to have satisfaction of your soul. You've had gladness and satisfaction. He satisfied you. This is the God who created you. He's living, and he provides everything for you, and also he uh, he is, he is the only one who can ultimately satisfy and bring gladness. Now, we don't know how he finished and how he got to Christ from there, but verse 20 said there were some, ended up with some disciples. So some people were converted. So he said more. Luke's just giving us the headlines here, probably just the introduction to the sermon. Um, but we know that he must have said more. But people surely are fickle. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> people are fickle. Because what happens is a a group of Jews come through from the previous two cities. So if you wanted to, uh, you know, if you wanted to dog an apostle, if you wanted to make life tough for them, you back in the day had to go from Pisidian Antioch, uh, you had to go uh, over to Iconium and gather a crowd there. And okay, we got all the people now, we're going to go down to Lystra. Now you just need to get on the internet. So it was a very different world. It cost you something to slander someone. It was more than a click uh, at, at your home uh, or on your phone, your laptop, whatever it is. So they, they, 
they come and they get everyone frenzied into a mob. And in verse 19, uh, it says some Jew, the Jews came, they persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas and Derby to, to, to Derby. They went on to Derby. So they went from worshiping the guy to killing the guy pretty quick. And that's kind of how fame works, I guess. You can get canceled very quickly, even in the first century. You can go from God to canceled and killed very, very quickly. That's not just a modern phenomenon. So why does that happen? Well, first of all, someone comes and is poisoning their minds and is probably slandering and raising concerns about them. But I've got to believe also that God didn't just give us this throwaway line in here. Uh, This has got to be part of it, that when he preached to them, he said that you should leave these vain things. Verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. He deconstructs their worldview. This idea that there are gods like Zeus and Hermes and multiple ones, and you've got to appease them by killing your oxen, and then you'll get good rain if you do that. You can sort of manipulate them. This sort of idea of how the world works is useless. Vain means useless, futile, empty. You need to turn from this empty stuff, which is doing nothing, and meet the real and living God. They likely grasped that he was calling them to turn from their core religious beliefs, their core personal beliefs, their core understanding of how the world worked, their core, in this case, potentially even political beliefs. How, how do we function as a people? Well, we all honor the gods together, and our gods are Zeus and Hermes, uh, that sort of a thing. So they obviously grasped that he was calling them to embrace a different God, a living God, and that what they were holding on to was vain and useless. And so they kill him. When you, when you declare something that is exclusive, at times people will push back. Some will ignore it and just resist God in their hearts, but other will push back. And so they drag him outside, they, they stone him, and then drag him outside the city and leave him for dead. Verse 20 says that when the disciples gathered, so these are new disciples, when they gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, it doesn't say he was dead. It's not saying that this was a resurrection, or technically it would be a resuscitation. Resurrection is when you get a spiritual body. But it doesn't say it's a resuscitation, that he was actually dead and brought back to life. It says that, uh, that they stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So it's probably not to be viewed as a resuscitation, but clearly it's miraculous. Clearly he's bloodied, he's unconscious. They leave him for dead, he's not talking, moving about. So he's unconscious, he's, he's lifeless. If you saw him, you would think you're looking at a corpse. He is lifeless, and then he gets up and walks back into town. And I'm not sure what the greater miracle is, that he gets up or that he goes back into the city with the people that just stoned him, that is, threw rocks at him to kill him. I can only imagine when he walked back in, people were like, whoa, the, the shock that must have, must have gone. But he, I think he just had to go back and represent God. I think he just had to go back and say, look, my message is true. Because he leaves the next day. He didn't stick around. He leaves for Derby the next day. The preaching of the gospel brings persecution. Not everyone persecutes. Not everybody gets angry and upset. Not everybody slanders Christians. Not everybody, uh, obviously. But the result 
of the gospel, it does bring, it is offensive. And you can see it in these texts, it's offensive to people. And they react to it. The result of the miraculous healing is Paul gets stoned. That's the result of this passage. Uh, Many people say, well, you know, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. Well, in Jesus' ministry, the people that saw miracles hung him on a cross. And in this situation, the people that saw a clear miracle, so amazing that they thought Paul was a god, end up killing him. So the idea that if you could see a miracle, you would believe in Jesus is not true in the Scripture. Many see miracles, and they do, but it's the principle of the gospel which divides the same sun that melts wax, hardens clay. So you might see a miracle, hear the good news, and your heart would be softened, but you might just harden your heart and be all the more guilty because you've rejected God, having heard the good news and seen it demonstrated in power. The, The gospel not only produces unity in here. That's what we've been talking about this year. It produces a unity in Christ in here, but it produces a lot of division out there. And we need to understand that. And I think the more we do, Acts helps us see, helps us to be a little less shocked by all that goes on in our world. Well, the last section is gospel fruit. Look at verse 20 again. We'll look at verse 20 through 28. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God by the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Derby, we don't read of any division. We don't read of any persecution. So it could have happened and it wasn't recorded, but God doesn't want us to know that. So what we know is that there were many disciples. Derby was just a time of gospel fruit, it appears uh, like, and that many people received the Lord. Then after that, they retrace their steps. They go back to where they were. So after they go to Derby, people come to Christ. Uh, they go back to Lystra where he got stoned again. And then they, they well, he didn't get stoned again, where they, he got stoned before. Then they go back to uh, Pisidian Antioch. They go back to all these cities. They encourage the new believers uh, in their faith and uh, they care for them as well by appointing elders in each city uh, so that people could help lead uh, these brand new churches. They returned to Antioch, which sent them out. And I love that. I love that they go back for a report and he, he reminds us in verse 27, they, when they got back to Antioch, the original Antioch, not, not Pisidian Antioch, but the, where the place that sent them out. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done. I'm sorry, I want to read the verse before 26. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that he had fulfilled. So Antioch owned this thing. They were a part of the, these, these two guys came from their church. They prayed for them. They commissioned them. They sent them. And now they're coming back to them with a 
I don't know, a video or a slideshow or something. Say, Here's what happened. This is amazing. But they're back home with those who had been praying and couldn't get updates. Those who had been praying for them and cared for them and had sent them. You see the full circle, how the church is employed in sending out for gospel mission and then receiving back and celebrating together as if they had been there themselves. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And they stayed, verse 28, at the church, for they remained there no little time. In other words, a long time they stayed with the church at Antioch that sent them. So they came back on modern day, they'd call that a furlough. They come back on furlough and stay with the church, and everybody is celebrating all that God had done. So that's kind of this, that's the whole missionary, the first missionary journey in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. What can we learn about mission And our calling through that. Well, I think one thing that's very clear here is that God opens doors for the gospel. And and I think the whole first missionary trip in chapters 13 and 14, I think the big theme of it's found in verse 27 here. When they arrived back in Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The whole story is about God opening doors. God opening a door for the gospel to go to the to the Gentiles. That's, that's the big idea of all that's going on here. And they come back and they report that. Paul uses the word door a lot in his letters or various times. It means a, a, a ripe opportunity, a favorable opportunity for the gospel. So he says there were favorable opportunities for the gospel. And this, this is so key that God opens doors. That's why we pray. We pray and trust in God and not our ingenuity or our plans or our ability to evangelize or something like that. We, we trust God, and, and, and they, that's what they do. They say, God, open the doors. And while you may not have the same calling as Paul, I, I don't, well, I know you don't. None of us are apostles like Paul. But while you may not be called to go to unreached peoples in other areas as he is, We all are called to be witnesses, and we're all dependent on God to open doors. And I love that. God opened a door for us. He sometimes talks about opening a door for him to walk through, but this time it's like a door of faith he opened for the Gospels. So it's not just an open door, but it's opening the heart on the other side of the door. That's what happened. And I just am challenged and want to challenge you to say, are we looking for open doors? We're different than Paul in one way, but in another way, we're no different. We have the gospel and are called to represent Jesus as ambassadors wherever we are. And I just wonder, are we looking for open doors? Are we praying for open doors? If God is the one who opens doors, then we, we should be talking to him about open, opening doors to people's hearts. Because there are people all around us. I believe people everywhere we work and live and play, everything we do, there's people all around us. And you don't know where someone's at until you begin to open up a conversation about spiritual things, you know? There's people around us, their, their door is just cracked open a little bit. There's a little bit of light there, but as they hear the gospel, it may swing wide open. There's some people, their door is about halfway open. Yeah, they're, they're open but cautious. They're wondering about Jesus. He's drawing them. They're curious. He say, man, their door is halfway open. There are other people's door that is wide open, that a, an explanation of the love of God for them, an explanation that what Christ did for them on the cross, they'd respond instantly. Their door is wide open. And we don't know when we look at someone. You can't determine that. And so we want to be those who are asking God to open doors of faith for people by the Spirit as we pray and serve others and love others and communicate the gospel to them.
God opens doors. But number two, we must meet people where they are on the other side of the door. I think Paul demonstrates that. That God opened a door here through the miracle of the healed man. But he had to relate in a way that connected with the people on the other side of the door. That's why he didn't go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Uh, He didn't go through the history of Israel because they didn't have any context for that. He started with who gives you your rain, who provides your crops, and who is the God by common grace that allows you to have any satisfaction and gladness in your life. That's what he does. An open door doesn't mean that we're not to connect with people where they are. We are. We're to understand people, and that's why the most effective evangelism typically is through relationship. As we get to know, that, now that's not the passage. I get he didn't have profound relationship with them for a long time or something, but he understood the people he was talking to. And so for us, as we relate with people, as we know people, we can see their need for God. The places uh, where they need God in their life, it's everywhere, but those places become more clear when we see that, when we know people. One of the reasons we've talked about living cross-culturally this year, learning to love cross-culturally, is because it sort of gets us in the, the mindset of like a missionary might have. The mindset which says, uh, I want to listen and learn about another person or another group of people. I want to know their background so that I can love them more personally and more effectively. And if there's any barriers to my relating and understanding, I want to learn that so that I can be more effective in sharing the love of Jesus with other people, especially people who may be different uh, than I am. God opens doors, but we got to walk through those doors and realize the person on the other side, we relate to them as they are and then take them to the gospel ultimately. Finally, the gospel not only leads to open doors, but slammed doors as well. When he told the whole story, it wouldn't have just been about open doors. It wouldn't have been, oh yeah, well tell me about the time they stoned you and you almost died. Oh yeah, that got mentioned as well, I'm sure. He may have had some scars that made it obvious what had happened, I don't know. But there are slam doors as well. Not everyone had an open door policy when Paul brought the gospel. The gospel is so polarizing that people wanted to kill him. And we see that in chapter 14 as well. It teaches us that gospel ministry, sharing the gospel with others, living faithfully where you work and where you live and as a family, connecting to others, that it's it's difficult representing Christ and loving others and opening our mouths and sharing good news with others. It's challenging. In Paul's situation, Barnabas' situation, there's persecution, there's division. Uh, There's people going around telling bad stories about them, lies, poisoning people's minds. There's a lot of uh, difficulty. There's troublemakers. There's even physical persecution, which is not something any of us are likely to experience presently. I don't know about the future, but presently, you're probably not going to experience any physical persecution for your faith in the United States. But there's all these other kinds of pushback. There's being ostracized or being mocked um, or in a lesser way being canceled, you know, lesser than him perhaps. But uh, there are those kinds of things. And, and I, I think it's important for us to know this, that when Paul is equipping disciples in this world, he tells them to expect trouble. I think Paul's new members class sounds very different, or a new Christian discipleship class. I think his new believer curriculum sounds very different than ours. Look, he gives us his new believer's curriculum in verse 22. He says he's going back to all the cities, right, revisiting these new believers. 
And he says in verse 22, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That sounds like our new believers material. And saying that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. We typically leave that out. Through many tribulations. Paul says, you're a new believer in Jesus. Here's what you should expect. Trouble, and a lot of that trouble will come from people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Often my inclination is, if there's opposition, something's wrong. In the book of Acts, if there's opposition, it may be that something's right. Something's right. Now, I have spoken against sort of Christian paranoia, the Christian victim mentality, which is very common in the evangelical world today. I've spoken against that. I think we need to have faith instead of cultivating fear-mongering. I'm not preaching a new message now. But I am preaching this reality that we should expect that in the world we'll have tribulation, and some of that tribulation will come from people that don't believe in Jesus Christ, which doesn't mean we go all paranoid. It just means, what did he say? Continue on in faith. Persevere in faith. He stayed with them a long time. He loved them. He cared for them and served them. We should demonstrate a message of faith that's compelling. The world's filled with fear, and if it's just a bunch of fearful Christians running around, that's just more fear. We should be salt and light and should be distinct, even when persecuted, distinct that we have a faithful God and we're committed to loving our enemies. That's a different message. That's what we're called to. The gospel is having its effect in these cities. And so some believe, some reject our calling, like Paul's, is simply to be faithful and follow Christ. The open doors are glorious because they mean new believers, they mean new churches, they mean mission efforts all over the world. So open doors are fantastic to know that God is reaching people and bringing them into his family and committing them as well to his mission, just as he did in Antioch, just as he did in Antioch. I love that, that God opened doors and the whole church felt the glory of that. And the chapter means that we are to look for open doors and pray for open doors and step through open doors. And we are to be aware that opposition is not some strange phenomena, that opposition is normal. It's to be expected. And it's helpful to read stories about people that get stoned and walk right back up into the city. It's helpful to see those examples that God is with his people, that the mission will continue. Ultimately, Paul will be killed, but the mission will continue even through the opposition. You can stone a guy and leave him for dead, and that will not shut up that preacher. He's going to get right back up and tell you about Jesus again. He's going to go to another city. He's going to come back to your city and disciple the people that believed uh, and love them and tell them to press on. There's a lot of trouble. Remember my stoning. There's a lot of trouble, but keep going. And as we experience come to the table and experience communion today. I just thought how powerful this open door theme is that Paul summarizes in, in, in speaking with his sending church. He summarizes that God opened doors. And you know what the, the reality is that Jesus faced great opposition, the greatest hostility, so that the door of our heart might be opened and that we might know him. We know Jesus because someone was persecuted in our place. We have eternal life because someone was not only slandered, but killed in our place as our substitute. God judged him, the innocent one, for our sins. The gospel um, 
which is such good news. We once opposed, everybody had their door slammed shut at one point, and God opened our hearts to him because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's stand together, and as we come to the table today, let's realize that, that there's division out there, but there's unity in here because we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. We have been unified in Jesus, his body broken that we might be one. So as we take this, remember the unity we ex- experience. So the, the, the Lord's Supper is a comfort because out there, maybe we don't experience that as much here. There'd be some places in the world where you say, out there I may die for my faith. We're not experiencing that here. May our hearts be in prayer for those who are. But out there, there is opposition and hatred and, and of every kind. But in here, there is welcome, there is grace, there is family. So the Lord's Supper historically has been a place, it's been a family meal where people took comfort in the body of Christ and the grace of God and the unity that we experience. So let's celebrate our unity as we do. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.